Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. So welcome back. Thanks for joining me on this lovely evening. I'm excited to dive further into this topic we've been talking about for the last now, gosh, it's been like five weeks now, I think. But we've been talking about, for those who haven't been around, we've been talking about different aspects of the Dharma that we find challenging. And what I've been trying to clarify is different aspects of the path that tend to trigger us or confuse us or get us stuck. And so we've been moving through a whole series of talks the last few weeks about these different elements of the Dharma. And last week we talked about, we started talking about the challenge that all of us have. I know all of us have this challenge of balancing the internal work of direct meditation practice with the external work of engaged dharma, right? Of serving others, caring for others, loving others, taking a stand for others who are in need or in need of us directly or standing up for a cause. This is where activism uh, meets the dharma in engaged dharma. And this is tough for us to figure out this balance. Sometimes we feel guilty for not doing enough. We get confused. How much am I supposed to practice? How much am I supposed to be serving? And that balance between the two can be very triggering and upsetting, uh, confusing. We can feel like we're failing sometimes. And so this question of internal work, external engagement, how do we find that balance? I Most of us as students will at some point come across that challenge for ourselves especially nowadays in times of significant social upheaval, we are being called to practice in various ways that are off the cushion. So how do we do that? How do we figure out ways to balance that with skillful effort? Last week, we talked about it as a framework for skillful effort. Learning to engage in the Dharma in a way that creates balance is part of the practice. So it's not like we're going to answer the question and then go practice. The practice is the question. And we're going to practice and solve that for ourselves and continue to change the answer to that question as mindfulness becomes deeper, as concentration becomes more stable, as the heart becomes more open. The answer to that question will change as practice matures. So that's kind of where we've gotten to uh, in the last few weeks. And I want to take a deeper dive into this question. I feel like there are some ways that we can frame this question and help us gain a deeper understanding of where we might go to find answers for ourselves. I think a helpful way to start is by reminding ourselves that this question, engaged dharma, external work, internal work, is really a question about what is the relationship between myself as an individual and my community, right? My human family, whether it be your immediate family or your friends or colleagues or the world itself. What is the actual relationship between my quest and desire for liberation and the liberation of others? And what is that? How does that actually function in practical terms within our practice? So this question is really asking ourselves, what is the relationship between self and other? 
That is really the big question. The ethical question is, what is my moral obligation to serve others? But in a more philosophical or conceptual framework, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is my relationship to other people in regards to my practice? And one reason this question can be tough for us is that in my experience as meditators, we actually get mixed messages in the Dharma about this question. And I wanted to highlight the two messages so we can kind of get in touch with the confusion we might have around this question. So the first message that's pretty common in Dharma circles, in our communities of practice and meditation communities, the first message we usually get is that throughout history, there have been various individuals, spiritual practitioners, philosophers, thinkers, who have made the claim that they've experienced some kind of awakening, some enlightenment, right? Some kind of spiritual experience where they've broken through or passed through the veil of the material world and touched down onto something within themselves that is greater than themselves. And have also brought back the message that they can teach us how to have that experience, that this experience is worthwhile and they can teach us how to walk a path to get there. So this is one of the messages that we hear, that somehow internally, in consciousness itself, in our own very hearts, in our own very minds, we can have an experience inside of inner freedom, inner peace, a sense of joy and compassion. And we can know these things in spite of the world, in spite of outside circumstances. There is this thing that is called inner freedom or inner awakening that we all have access to. And with certain training and practice and commitment, we have this birthright to experience this thing that gurus and teachers and the Buddha alike call awakening. So that is one message that we hear, that there's this inner world that can lead us to this universal awakening. And that this universal experience of awakening is not dependent on outside circumstances. That part of its freedom is that no matter how much we're suffering inside, or no matter how much suffering is on the outside, this experience can still be had. And it's very inspiring for a lot of us that this freedom is being offered, that our practice might lead to such a place or such a state of consciousness or experience or domain, whatever you want to call it. That that, that experience is possible can be very exciting for a lot of us. What's interesting, though, about that message is what we're really being told is that human beings can become enlightened in an unenlightened world. That throughout history, these humans like ourselves who've made the claim to this experience are getting enlightened when the world of, around them is in terrible distress. They're living in times of poverty and war, racism, classism, all kinds of upheaval, and yet they're laying a claim to some inner peace in spite of those circumstances. So the message is we can be enlightened even if those around us are not. Even though the world may be in distress, we can still have some kind of liberation. So that's one message that we get. The opposite message that we also get, <laughs> sometimes from these same communities and from the same teachers for that matter, the opposite message or the hopefully the compatible message that we hear is 
that no one is free until everyone is free. That's another message we get, that it's impossible for any of us to really be liberated unless all beings are liberated. That phrase, and there's a variety of ways to say that, but no one is free until everyone is free, is a very common phrase that we hear. And to be honest, I don't know where the original Western uh, link to that phrase is. I know it's been ascribed to Martin Luther King. I know it's been ascribed to Maya Angelou. I think it's been ascribed to um, Fannie Lou Hammer. It's been subscribed to so many different uh, spiritual uh, people, activists, thinkers. But this, this idea that freedom is a collective experience or no experience, that we either all go up and are free or there is still work to do, and that no individual can claim true freedom until our family, our community is free as well. So that leaves us with a very interesting conundrum. Conundrum, which is it? <laughs> can we actually be free before everyone is free? Or does everyone have to be free at the same time? And what does that actually mean? What are we really saying when we have this message of freedom? And to what degree does the world at large, culture at large, institutions at large, need to be free, loving, kind, before any individual can have this experience of awakening. Now, in the Dharma, we, of course, have another tricky message, which is the Bodhisattva vow. I'm not going to go into the do it into complete uh, detail because there's a, quite a bit of complexity and actual significant amount of politics involved in the history of this Bodhisattva vow. But most of us come across this concept of the Bodhisattva vow in this way. And the vow essentially says, depending on the tradition, that the higher goal of meditation is to postpone our liberation until all beings are liberated. This vow that we take to dedicate ourselves to a life of serving others rather than a focus on our own liberation. Now, different traditions and different Buddhist sects describe this vow differently. Some are much more traditional, some are more modern, and they all have different ways of going about it. But the energy behind it is a message that perhaps the individual liberation is a little selfish and that we really should be focusing more on the well-being of others and the service of others. So this, this is an alignment with the theme that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. I think a couple weeks ago, one of the talks was, is the practice selfish, right? Is my own liberation a selfish act? And so these questions, these messages that we get are kind of mixed. We have one message that says throughout history, we've had human beings who've had these breakthroughs and that they can have liberation in spite of what's going on in the world. And then another message which says, as long as the world is still filled with suffering, the work is not done. My suggestion is that it's, the answer basically lies somewhere in between, that both are actually true. And that when people are teaching these messages, both are true in their own way. And that somewhere in between, there is a skillful balance for each one of us to establish within our own heart and our own mind. And as our practice grows, the balance will change as our mindfulness deepens. So somewhere in between my own liberation and the liberation of all beings is my path, is my practice. I wanted to review how traditional Buddhism 
sees this question. Again, these are just frameworks for you to be thinking about for your own decision making and how you guide your own experience for spiritual practice. It is clear in the traditional teachings of the Dharma that an individual can be liberated even in times of suffering, their own suffering and the suffering of others. That as human beings, we are separate enough that individuals can still become free in very distressing circumstances. Now, the caveat to that, of course, is this. Traditional Buddhism also says that that freedom that we're talking about, that individual awakening, cannot be had unless we wake up to the awareness that we are interconnected with all beings. We need to become awake and aware that our unconscious habits cause harm to all beings, and we have to look closely at those habits and make commitments of non-harm. In order to have the individual liberation, we must make a commitment to be skillful in speech, in livelihood, in action. We make a declaration to do no harm to others and a declaration to not harm ourselves with our practice. The practice itself gives us a sense of energy, gives us a sense of self-care that's very evident the longer we practice it. But the teachings are very clear that that self-care that we're doing through meditation is in the context of the highest aspiration of all beings to be free. The clarity in the path really does say that no individual liberation is possible without awareness, compassion, and generosity to others. It's never truly an individual liberation. So in the traditional teachings of the Buddha, there is this acknowledgement that we can, as individuals, have this inner freedom, and yet that inner freedom cannot happen in a vacuum. It must happen with a transformation that includes the awareness of other, the awareness of our impact as we move through the world, and the karmic impact that we have when we come into contact with other human beings. And that if we do not cultivate a heart of openness and of gratitude and love and joy, then that internal liberation, that individual freedom, is not accessible. So we see in the traditional teachings this very interesting balance. Yes, an individual can become free, but not if they're harming another individual. And yet, my individual awakening can occur even if other individuals are suffering in some way. So there is a link between the individual and the community, but there is enough separation between my liberation and yours, for example, that one of us can be liberated and the other person can still be working on their practice. Another aspect of the traditional definition of enlightenment is that enlightenment itself, the actual event of, I call it an event, an event, it's an event like going to a movie or a carnival or something, the experience of enlightenment, which I would hope is much more exciting than that, um, has a positive impact on everyone that you come in contact with. So that quest to become liberated permanently changes us in such a way that we live life with unbounded compassion and unbounded care for all beings. And that at that point, we walk in the world with that energy 
And that enlightened energy, so to speak, impacts every person positively that we come in contact with. And the awakening itself, as awakening grows within us, the increase in awakening is correlative to an increase in compassion. So the very process of becoming awakened is not wholly considered a selfish or individual act. Because as the awakening of my heart happens, my love for all of you grows. So though I'm working on myself inside, I'm also gaining care and love for other simultaneously. So the very act of being awakened in a traditional Buddhist context is that the awakening itself is a gift to the world. It's a gift to everybody that we come in contact with. And I often say this, separate from enlightenment itself, I always feel like our practice is a service to others. That anytime we come together, like an evening like this, and we come together and we practice together and we're curious together and loving together and support each other in practice, when we leave this room, that's a benefit to our friends, our family, our kids, our coworkers. Everyone we touch is benefited from us taking time away to go inward to heal, right? To me, that is a great service to the world. <laughs> I think it's the greatest service. But traditionally, the Buddha would have said and enlightened beings have said that that experience of enlightenment is a gift to others. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about the consequences of the experience, which then affect everybody that we have contact with. So again, early on in the teachings, the idea of the individual being liberated is a little blurry. It's, it's it, yes, the individual becomes awakened, but on that journey, they are always awake and aware to the benefit of all beings. And it does benefit every person they contact as the experience grows and deepens over time. Another aspect of this that we always have to remember is that the actual experience of awakening inspires people to practice. If people don't become awakened, then over time, people are doubtful and skeptical that awakening can actually occur. So awakened beings throughout history have been role models for the path. They've held within themselves the map to be able to help others get to that place. And so if over time, we begin to completely downplay enlightenment as something selfish, before you know it, nobody knows how to get there. So throughout history, the enlightened beings were considered a cherished, I was about to say person, but they really at that point are probably not considered people in the normal sense. They're a cherished uh, gift for the entire community because the person that can say, hey, I've been there and I can show you how to get there now becomes hugely helpful and of service to all beings in the community. So we must remember that over time, what happens if less and less people actually become awake and aware, then we lose the map. We don't know how to get there and we no longer have proof that the practice is worth doing. And over time, enlightenment becomes like a myth or a legend. Like, oh yes, back in the day, people claimed that there was awakening. But there are times in history and throughout the world where you have people who are actively awakened and aware, who are inspiring others to get there, essentially. So that's another aspect of the non-selfish domain of the path to awakening, is that the path itself inspires other people to continue practicing. You'll hear me say often when we 
engage in our loving kindness practice, that our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free. That our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free. That is true. That is true, undoubtedly. Traditionally in Buddhism, in the Theravada traditions, in the Mahayana traditions, even if one is not taking a bodhisattva vow, per se, the idea that our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free is certainly explicit in our teachings. From a Buddhist framework, the idea of a community is that the culture is made up of the individuals and that the more individuals within a culture that become awake and aware, the more kind and generous and benevolent the systems and the culture become. Buddhism really does focus on the internal journey. It really focuses on the inner experience. And the idea behind this and why it's so challenging for people is that it's easy to forget sometimes that we can change systems at the superficial level. Actually, let me give you this example, which has always been uh, interesting to me and has been something that I've seen recently with our new president, uh, Biden. Obama came into office, right? And with Congress and the Senate and so on, passed a bunch of laws that helped reduce climate change. We had a bunch of positive things that happened with social services and so on. So certain things came online within our government that were very positive. And then that presidency ended and another president came into power. And in a lot of ways, systematically reversed a lot of those things, specifically targeted a lot of things that we would call beneficial to our world and to our communities and reversed those policies, those laws, and the funding associated. And now that presidency has ended and a new president has come into the system and is now reversing some of the laws and the systems that were undone in the previous uh, presidency. The reason I point that out is changing systems doesn't necessarily change the hearts and souls of human beings. Yes, we need to change systems. We need to change laws. We need to change the way we live in the largest systemic scale of our experience. And yet, if we don't change the inside, with each new president, with each new leader, with each new generation, these systems arise and pass away. If we don't change our hearts, if we don't have the awakening that leads us to be compassionate and loving and caring and interconnected with all beings, then the superficial change on top never takes hold. So that's a Buddhist experience or description of how systems work from a Buddhist perspective. The reason the Dharma so heavily focuses on the inner journey, because the idea is the more people that we can be that can become awakened enough people will become awakened where then those systems will will be able to change and permanently move in a positive direction so it's a very different way of going about things in the west we tend to go top down in eastern psychology particularly in buddhism we work from the inside out it's from the bottom up and sometimes that's challenging for us right because we know that we must take a stand for changing systems, even if it means short-term help for the environment, for people of color, for communities that have been exploited, 
those who've been oppressed. We need to put a stop to systems and laws that harm people, and we need to do that immediately. And as practitioners, we need to remind ourselves that that is a short-term solution to the inner awakening that must occur if those changes are going to be permanent. If we're going to evolve socially beyond the limits of our current heart-mind capacity as a human family, we're going to need to do the inner work. So this is why we have this question, how much inner work do I need to do? How much outer work do I need to do? And what does that look like for myself? How much do I help on the outside? How much do I help on the inside? The answer, as I said, is somewhere in between. And each one of us is going to be walking that path, asking that question, and developing in compassion, asking ourselves continuously, okay, in this moment, what would be skillful? Do I need to spend more time caring for others? Do I need to spend more time on the cushion? Do I need to go on retreat and spend a week in silence? Or do I need to spend a week in protest? What is it that's going to be skillful for me in this moment? And there isn't really a definitive answer. It's a part of the process of awakening to experience this question deeply and authentically within ourselves. And to bring this around to the basic themes that we've been talking about in the last few weeks, one of the things I had said yesterday, not yesterday, last, uh, last week, was... It's in my personal opinion as a meditator for the last 20 plus years now that it is worth our time and it's worth our attention to really lean into that question, to really take time to mull it over, to really show up in the world with kindness and wisdom and compassion is not easy. There really isn't an easy answer. And I think as meditators, it can be very inspiring to know that the Buddha was really all about trial and error. The Buddha really understood that we as human beings are ignorant. We have blind spots. And the only way to remove those blind spots is to give it a try. We have to try to be more loving, try to be more compassionate, and then see how it feels, see how it's working for us, and then course correct when it doesn't seem to be good enough. Or when we're working too hard at caring for others and we feel burnt out and run down, skillful effort says, hey, I'm going to back off a little bit and care for myself in this moment. The Buddha really encouraged us to experiment with the practice and to use a trial and error model to decide what is skillful in this moment, what is skillful in the next moment. The challenge with this question often shows up with an aversion to beginner's mind. Human beings don't like to not know. We don't like to live in the world where we don't have answers. It doesn't feel good to not know with certainty how to live and how to be, especially if you're a curious person and are asking that question. Beginner's mind is a concept in the Dharma because so many of us rebel against it. We're not that comfortable not knowing. We feel insecure. We feel vulnerable. It just feels better to be able to stand up and say, guess what? I'm right. That feeling, righteousness feels good. (laughs) Feeling like we have the answer has a certain sense of ego pleasure. It feels good to us to have the answer. When we don't have it, not so much. That is why the Dharma takes so much courage. Some of the courage in the Dharma is being comfortable with not knowing. Just saying, I don't know. I don't know what it is to show up in kindness in this moment. Let me figure it out. And being comfortable with that journey. 
when we're not comfortable with the journey, the challenge becomes is that the mind and heart fall back on trying to come up with reductionistic, black and white, overly simplified answers for very complex, deep, and spiritual questions. We have these very deep, complex, nuanced questions, and the fear of not being right and not knowing drives the heart and mind to come up with some kind of simple answer. And oftentimes those simple answers, although they may work in the short run, they may not last. They may not really serve us in the long run. They may not really solve the problem that we're trying to answer. And if we don't really take the time, the patience, and the self-compassion work that needs to be done, some of the answers that we come up with end up doing us harm or harming others because we're impatient. We want to have an answer to the problem, so we come up with a solution, but we don't think it through. The feeling of being right feels really good in the moment, but then we turn around and later we find out, oh, I'm harming someone again (laughs) because I hadn't thought of all the downhill consequences of how I'm behaving. So it really helps us to engage this journey and this dilemma with some real heart, some care, and some tremendous patience. There's three things I wanted to remind us of, and this is mostly in Western culture, particularly North American culture, and it's a Judeo-Christian overlay. And I see this a lot with meditators who are trying to figure out how to develop a practice of engaged Dharma, really want to serve in the world, really want to care for others, and they really want to know that their practice isn't selfish. And there's three paradigms that we fall into. The first one is the superhero. Westerners like the superhero model, and the superhero model is, I'm going to save the world. It's my job to save the world, and if I don't feel like I'm saving the world, I feel guilty, I feel like I'm not doing enough, and then I'll never get it right. Or I look at the problems of the world and feel like since I have to be the superhero and solve them, I'm just overwhelmed at the enormity of suffering that I'm trying to take on. I know a lot of people that get bogged down by feeling like they have to solve huge, historical, systemic human problems on their own. We don't have to be the superhero. We just need to step up and serve. We don't have to solve the problem on our own. But the Western mind has this superhero thing that it does where it feels like it is responsible for saving everybody. This goes hand in hand with the martyrdom, the martyrdom paradigm. And the martyrdom paradigm is I need to sacrifice myself to serve others, that I need to sacrifice. So not only am I a superhero, which is I need to do it all, but it's okay that I sacrifice my own well-being and my own health to serve others because that's the higher goal. And that's a very linear way of looking at systems because we have to remember we're all part of the human family. So we see a lot in social work, in activist communities, in mental health fields, great activists, great leaders, and selfless folks burn out and they leave the fields and can no longer serve because they've sacrificed so much of themselves and they can no longer be of service to others. They get compassion fatigue and burnout. They get bitter and overwhelmed. So being this martyr is not healthy. In the the short run, you might really be out there helping people and standing up and being generous and kind. But human evolution is not a sprint. 
right? This is a marathon of compassion. So we have to be careful when we think that sacrificing our own well-being is a necessary part of this training and this experience. The third one is the saint archetype. And the saint archetype is just, I'm never good enough. I, I can't be good enough. No matter how kind, no matter how generous, I always just feel too selfish. I'm never going to be the saint. I'm never going to be this selfless, enlightened being. And we put so much burden of expectation on ourselves that when we go to serve and to work in communities and be generous with folks, there's this resentment that can build up. I have the privilege of talking to lots of folks in the activist communities, being a social worker, and this is very common that people are trying to be perfect. They can't accept that they only have time to serve one cause in a 40 or 50 hour week. They feel bad because they can't serve six causes and they feel bad that they can't do six causes perfectly. This happens a lot with people who are trying to awaken to compassion. They either put on the superhero cape, they self-sacrifice to the point of exhaustion or fatigue, or they're expectation of having to be the best meditator, activist, caregiver, whatever it may be. And under the burden of those unwieldy expectations, we get crushed by our very efforts to be awake. We get crushed and tired and exhausted from the very path that's trying to awaken us. So those tendencies are not sustainable, although they may prove in short term to be helpful. You may have to sacrifice some nights of sleep to care for somebody or to take part in something. But long term, we need all of your hearts to be energized and rested and healthy if we're going to continue to awaken as a human family and as a human community. One last thing I will say about this process of balancing the internal and the external is this. Another reason it's so important for you to be consciously thinking about this. Now, I'll do a caveat here. If it hasn't happened in your practice yet that this has come up, that does not, not mean you are selfish, does not mean you are cold-hearted, it doesn't mean anything other than your practice hasn't gotten there yet. So, if you have not gotten to a point in your practice where engaged dharma is the right medicine for you, that's fine. If you continue to practice seriously and with intention, it will happen automatically. I always encourage people to challenge themselves to show up in the world as generous and giving human beings. That being said, there is a time to say this is not the right medicine for me and we have to honor that as well. With that in mind, I wanted to conclude with this, which is one of the reasons it's important for us to actively engage in this reflection. What is my ethical obligation to other human beings? What are my values? What are my precepts? What is it for me to have wise speech and wise action and wise livelihood? One of the important reasons for doing this is that if you don't do it, a half dozen other people will give you or tell you what you should be doing. There's always gonna be someone else who will offer their values to you. They will offer their cause, their orientation, their precepts or whatever. Human beings love to tell other people how to be good people. And if you do not orient yourself with your own spiritual GPS and get in touch with your own values, 
you can feel guilted or shamed or bullied or intimidated by other people who are also asking these questions. It's this common experience that people have that when they become awake and begin to serve, they immediately turn to somebody else and not only invite them to serve, but the, the other person is not willing to serve, then there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of ridicule, there can be bullying and toxic shame and so many different things that happen in these communities where we are trying to awaken as a family. And some people just aren't ready or some people have not found their own way. So I think people, in my experience, the more I was actively involved in establishing my values, the easier it was for me to talk to other people about where I was at in my own awakening, in my own ability to serve, what I was focusing on, what I was learning. I found before that there was so much energy coming at me. I just felt like every time I opened an email or talked to somebody, somebody else was telling me about a book or a cause or something I needed to be a part of. And I felt very stressed. I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much suffering in the world. I don't even know where to start. And so I was like, oh gosh, I don't want to take part in any of this. And that is, you know, not what I wanted. So I'm just going to invite you to consider that this question of how to engage compassionately will help you engage with others. The very question will help you be with other people who are suffering and it will allow you to find an answer that works for yourself in this moment. Whatever the right medicine is, you will find it if you engage skillfully and give yourself some self-care and some patience and even some creativity, I think, is also in order for this exploration. So that's the inner journey compared to the outer journey. It is significant in the Dharma. Eventually this question arises and eventually the question will need to be explored. Well, my friends, that brings us to time. Thank you so much for your kind-hearted attention coming together in practice. What a privilege, as Kate said. It's amazing. Give me a shout out if this stuff is still confusing or if you have some stuff that is triggered. Uh, this stuff is tough. There's no, there's no right answers with this. Got to figure it out. We can figure it out together, though. Let's take some time to wish everybody well. Let's do some meta on our way out the door tonight. Let's fall back into presence for a minute or two. Take a long, slow, deep breath in, in through the nose and out through the mouth. And on the exhale, really relax into body. Regrounding ourselves in the first foundation, in the body sitting and the body breathing. It is such a privilege to do this work. Each of us was able to take time out of our day with a sense of safety and security, knowing we'd have food and shelter, knowing we'd have folks around us who love and care and attend to our needs. 
So we must always remind ourselves that we come together for our own liberation. But that liberation always entails our highest aspiration to show up in the world as a wise, compassionate, and giving being. And we remind ourselves of this intention by wishing well for all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be safe and at ease. May all beings know true joy, true happiness, and true freedom in this lifetime. So much is going on in the world in this moment. So we might choose this evening to conclude by asking ourselves this question. In this moment, if you could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass, what would that wish be? In this moment, with this breath, what is your authentic highest aspiration for all beings? Thank you so much for the generosity of your time. Thanks for coming, my friends. We'll see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. Be well. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.